Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, the ongoing health crisis has forced the cancellation of this year's Florida Folk Festival, but we'll look at the history of one of our state's most enduring cultural events. I love the, uh, the folk life stuff that they have here, the old Cracker Cowboys talking about their way of life and the old catfish fishermen that are still running trot lines and stuff, you know what I mean? It's cool to see all that here. You can find it all in one park in one weekend. It's, it's pretty awesome. We'll discuss Andrew Ellicott and the border between Florida and the United States. He started in 1796, didn't complete it until 1800. So you're talking about four years just to survey that boundary. And we'll talk about journalist and civil rights activist Mabel Norris Reese. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Are you from Dixie? I said from Dixie. We're all in fields of orange, they begging to me. I say how be you? It's good to see you, man. How's all them friends like home I long to see? If you're from Alabama, Florida, Tennessee, Georgia. Carolina, see a little place below that Mason, Dixie, mind y'all from Dixie. That's Florida blues man Ben Prestige, one of many performers who regularly play the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs. Since 1953, the Florida Folk Festival has been held at the Stephen Foster Folk Culture Center State Park. The annual event celebrates Florida's diverse cultural heritage through music, dance, storytelling, food, exhibits, and more. Musician Paul Garfunkel has been playing the Florida Folk Festival for more than two decades. This is the place where uh, Florida tradition meets, meets modern Florida, where people have the chance to come and get away from the, the workaday world and learn about what Florida really is, what real Florida is. Standing here on the banks of the Suwannee, I remember the first time I played down here on this stage with, uh, with Frank Thomas, just unbelievable, it's, it's goosebumps. Uh, between here and places like the Old Marble Stage that used to be the main stage for the, uh, the Florida Folk Festival. And you feel the ghosts of the people that were here before. You feel the traditions. You feel Cousin Thelma Bolton being here. You feel Gamble Rogers here. You feel Will McLean here. And it's just uh, an awesome opportunity for folks like me to be able to come out here once a year and share what we have to share about the state of Florida. Legendary folk musician Frank Thomas is known for writing songs about Florida and for holding workshops at the festival to help others do the same. There's so much history in the state of Florida. You say Florida and they think about dismal world, you know, and the tragic kingdom, stuff like that. And the beaches, they don't understand that uh, more calves are birthed in Florida than anywhere else. The calves are birthed here, they ship the calves out west to the feed because it's cheaper to ship the calf one time than to ship food in here to fatten them up once a month or whatever. So it's just, uh, 
it's fascinating stuff, you know. And and this area where we're at right now, up here in North Florida, this was a big tobacco growing country. Cotton was big up here. And I guess, you know, back uh, before the war, they had plantations up here. Probably had slaves working on the plantations and things. So Florida, it's just fascinating to me, the history of it. All the way back through the Spanish and the British and then the, the crackers came in and here we are today. Pedro Zapeta does educational outreach for the Atatiki Seminole Museum. He's displayed his Seminole wood carving at the Florida Folk Festival. You know, I feel it's important to, to maintain our traditions because, you know, I'm making things. They're not just objects. Those objects are carrying the knowledge and skills of, you know, all of my ancestors. So there's a lot of things associated with it. So it's not just making a spoon. There's a lot more to it. There's getting all these different traditional knowledges that are associated with these objects. And uh, sometimes things have just what you call traditional protocol as well. There's um, We have different uh, rules and etiquette that go along with just about everything in, in Seminole culture. And so creating objects is not is not an exception to that. Menorcan cast net maker Michael Lucina is passing down his unique skill to apprentices. Lucina has displayed his nets in the folk life area at the Florida Folk Festival. Well, I, I picked it up watching my father and my brothers, especially my father. I was sitting and watch him making, making nets because uh, it's the same thing. I can tell you what, I ate a lot of, of fish and grits growing up, I can tell you. But uh, it, was, uh, it was a fun time to learn to do this, and then uh, I just hope to pass it on. Mary Allgaier is a dancer with the Hot Pepper Steppers. To me, it's, there's so many different styles of dancing and music, and this is what spoke to me when I came here 30 years ago, and I think there's something here that speaks to everybody because we're all from, you know, some other place in our, we, when we go back. And I think there's something that touches everybody. And it's just really nice to share that. Every time we come, somebody else gets excited and starts dancing. So it's, that's pretty special. Jeffrey Forbes is a leader of the Sweetwater Shape Note Singers. I think what's important about keeping uh, the tradition of sacred harp alive is that, well, the music's just beautiful. It uh, is a, a tool by which people can learn to sing. Uh, that's what it was always intended to be. It also allows people to uh, express themselves. Shape note singing is sung full out in full voice. There's, there's no dynamics other than full on singing. So it, it, for a lot of people, it lets them express themselves fully uh, without any constraints uh, in singing. Historically, I think it's important to keep this alive because it lets people uh, especially Southerners, be Southerners in their own right. And so you'll see people acting perfectly naturally. For more than 30 years, Haitian storyteller and cook Lillianne Luis has been sharing her culture at the Florida Folk Festival. The people were so resentful for her Haitian boat people. Although I didn't come by boat, but all Haitians are supposed to be boat people for them. And then they gave me a hard time, but I kept my job and I stayed 20 years until I retired. I took an early retirement just to do my stories, just to go to school, libraries, uh, festivals, all over the world to tell my stories. So that, that makes me happy to have been able to keep the culture. Dr. Peggy Balger is the recipient of the 2019 Legends and Legacies Lifetime Achievement Award. 
Spalzer started the Folklife area at the Florida Folk Festival in the 1970s and has had an influence on the event ever since. Well, the Florida Folk Festival is very interesting because it's been going uh, since 1953. So it's the longest running state folk festival in the country. And it's gone through many iterations over the years, as you can imagine. Um, but it now is a combination of many things. Uh, to some people, it's like a family reunion because they've been coming for generations, really. Some people, the family's been coming since the 1950s. And now the third generation of children are growing up uh, beginning to play music and loving uh, all kinds of folk music. Uh, to uh, those of us who are folklorists, we have uh, different stages where we try to showcase the traditional culture of Florida that people wouldn't know. Um, so each year there's a theme or there's a occupation or an ethnic group that's featured in the folklife area. And uh, people get to know more in depth. So one year it would be the Menorcans of St. Augustine, or one year it might be, you know, people who are involved with the surfing industry of Florida. It just depends. And most people don't think of that as being folklore, but it is. And so um, it's a, a gathering in a very rural part of the state. So the whole uh, all the little communities right there in Hamilton County and Swanee County and near Lake City, they uh, actually benefit from, you know, all of these folks coming there once a year for this weekend celebration. The Suwannee River passes through Stephen Foster Folk Culture Center State Park in White Springs. Old trees add to the beautiful natural setting. Every Memorial Day weekend, thousands of people converge at the park to experience a wide variety of Florida folk music, traditional dancing passed down from generation to generation, storytelling from different cultural groups, and food including barbecue, collard greens, cornbread, shrimp gumbo, homemade ice cream, and other festival food. As Peggy Balzer explains, the Florida Folk Festival emerged out of a national movement to celebrate our cultural heritage. The Florida Folk Festival was an outgrowth of the National Folk Festival. Back in 1934, a woman named Sarah Gertrude Knott was hired by uh, the WPA. Uh, it was a WPA-inspired project. Sarah was good friends with the Roosevelts. She wanted to put on a spectacle, a huge festival that would celebrate uh, the diversity of uh, people in the United States. And this is the first time that anything like this had ever been done. There had been festivals that would be uh, ethnically based or maybe community based, but there was nothing on the scale of a national festival to bring together all the different groups and everybody celebrate uh, everybody else's culture. In 1952, the Florida Federation of Music Clubs decided that Florida needed its own folk festival. Thelma A. Bolton, also known as Cousin Thelma, was a primary organizer of the event from the beginning. Peggy Balzer. She took Sarah Gertrude Knott's model and uh, it kind of replicated it on the state level. So the first festivals, for instance, had uh, Josie Billy and uh, some of the elders of the uh, Seminole tribe who came up, and that was really exotic for people in 
rural North Florida. They might have lived in Florida all their lives, but had never really seen a real Seminole. Uh, she had African-American gospel singers. She had bluegrass players. She had the Greeks from Tarpon Springs came in very early and, and played Greek music. So she took that model and re replicated it in rural North Florida, a town of 800 people. And uh, it's, I mean, the, the model is a good one. And so uh, it, it went on from there. Musician Ben Prestige says that the Florida Folk Festival is an opportunity for people to experience the real Florida culture. I think a lot of people don't, they think of Florida and they think of uh, obviously like Disney World and beaches and stuff, but that's really not Florida culture and history, you know. That's people from other, other places coming down um, and uh, doing that stuff. But yeah, there is a lot of culture here, a lot of Southern culture and um, just with food and music and stuff like that, that's unique to this part of the country. Um, you know, guys like Frank Thomas, man, really opened my eyes to that. Like, there is like a certain style of Florida folk music that uh, I almost want to say it's like a subgenre of, of country or bluegrass or something. But uh, it's its own unique thing, and I love those songwriters like Frank Thomas that are that write about Florida and, and Florida history and Florida culture and things that go on here that don't go on in other parts of the country. You know what I mean? It's really cool, and this festival like embodies that whole thing with the music. Um, and the different subcultures that we have in Florida, whether it be like the Hispanic, uh, Cubano stuff coming out of Miami, uh, to uh, the bluegrass stuff upstate Florida, and um, it's just so much. I love the, uh, the folk life stuff that they have here, the old Cracker Cowboys talking about their way of life, and the old catfish fishermen that are still running trot lines and stuff, you know what I mean? It's cool to see all that here. You can find it all in one park in one weekend. It's, it's pretty awesome. The annual Florida Folk Festival is usually held Memorial Day weekend in White Springs, but COVID-19 has forced the cancellation of this year's event. You're from Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, what's in the Florida, Tennessee, Carolina? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, in the late 18th century, the border between Spanish Florida and the United States was not well defined, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. After 1783, when this newly created country called the United States was formed and Spain actually regained control of the Floridas, 
they had to figure out how they were going to legally at least establish a border between the colony of Spanish Florida and now the country of the United States. And this was a big issue. There was a lot of trade. There were a lot of people moving into the Southeast, specifically into Georgia and what will become Alabama, Mississippi. And also they needed to figure out who really secured, most importantly, navigable rights of major rivers that came throughout Florida. And the Mississippi was probably the most important. So getting into the latter decade, late 1780s, into the 1790s, there were a lot of issues and there were a lot of American settlers that just sort of forced their way illegally into Spanish colonial territories. There were issues with some of the indigenous groups who allied themselves with both countries at some times, and just a lot of kind of this fluidity over the border. So it really was one of these just unregulated borders. So both countries had to figure out what to do. Spain needed to try and hold on to control, and the Americans were really trying to hold back their settlers, but were also trying to exert their newly found influence in the region and push that influence further south. So in 1795, both countries finally came up with what became known as Pickney's Treaty. It's also known as the Treaty of San Lorenzo. It was ratified by both countries in 1796. And part of that treaty stipulated that a survey crew, both Spanish and Americans, properly survey the area. And that became kind of a political issue. But the United States appointed a very well-known surveyor named Andrew Ellicott to do that job. So who was Andrew Ellicott and what qualified him to survey the Florida border? He was originally born in uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania in 1732 and was born into a Quaker family. But very early on, he showed an aptitude for engineering and mathematics and was mostly self-taught. But by the time he was a young man, he moved to Maryland, settled just outside of Baltimore. When the Revolutionary War broke out, he joined the side of the revolutionaries and actually served in a Maryland militia regiment throughout the war. He then came home to Maryland, and this is where he began to survey or, or started in the occupation of surveying. And he was actually working with a group that was resurveying what would become the Mason-Dixon line between Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Delaware. So the United States was, again, sort of slowly moving west and moving south. And a lot of that work really came down to surveyors. It was actually through this work that he became fairly well-known. He was appointed by President George Washington to survey the border between New York, Pennsylvania, and Lake Erie. And he really became very well-known for his accuracy and the really great job that he did. So he's again tapped by Washington to lay out what would become the District of Columbia. In fact, there are four monuments that still exist today that mark the four corners of the District of Columbia. He later worked, too, to, to help survey the city of Washington, D.C. itself. So he was internationally known by the 1790s. And in 1795, 1796, Washington knew that they had to appoint Ellicott to do this job if they wanted it done right. So he came to Florida in September of 1796. He actually made his way down the Mississippi River, and he started in West Florida. Now, remember at that time, West Florida actually stretched all the way to the Mississippi River. This is where all that controversy started. The Mississippi River was the river. This was the lifeblood for trade into the interior of the United States and the western portions of the U.S. So control of that area was vitally important for both parties. So he gets there to this area called Natchez, and he actually helps to incite a rebellion amongst a lot of the American frontiersmen that were living there because the Spanish officials wouldn't relinquish control of certain territories above the 31st parallel. So he starts off kind of on a bad foot, but he proves himself to be this really masterful diplomat because he's able to deal with all of these different entities, the Spanish, the Americans who were already living there. There are other expatriates who were French 
and British who were still living in these areas, but also his dealings with the indigenous groups. And he writes actually in his journal a little bit about some of those interactions with the Creek Indians, the Seminole Indians when he gets into Florida. Because remember too, there are tens of thousands of these individuals that live in the interior. This is not just open wilderness. People are living there. So they need permission essentially to run their boundary lines and to make their observations. So all of this kind of this diplomatic action took a long time. He started in 1796, didn't complete it until 1800. So you're talking about four years just to survey that boundary. And the Spanish ended up losing a little bit of territory of what they claimed. But it really set the line that, that would hold for another few decades, at least, for the most part, that would separate Spain from the United States. And he published all of this into a journal. And that's what we're looking at today. This is actually a facsimile of his journal that he wrote in 1803. And it's filled with these very, very detailed, somewhat dry details of the actual surveying operation, all of his astronomical calculations, everything is included in this book. And he talks a little bit about his time in Florida, but it's not as flowery as, say, William Bartram's travels or anything like that, but it's still a really vital part of Florida's history canon. After all of that, did Eliot's work resolve the border issues? Well, not really. The border remained very fluid. In fact, Spain was slowly losing control of the colonies in Florida. You know, they had wars raging over in Europe, so they really couldn't secure their border very well. And there was this constant pressure from the Americans to begin settling into these areas. And there were several incursions, one of which happened in 1810. This became known as the West Florida Rebellion when a group of Americans essentially moved in and overthrew the government and created what became the Republic of West Florida. And then the United States kind of swooped in surreptitiously and annexed the territory, which then meant that they controlled all of the Mississippi and navigation on the Mississippi. So, you know, these kinds of incidences continued to happen for the next few decades. And then 1818, we had what became the first Seminole War and, and Andrew Jackson's invasion of Spanish Florida. By 1819, the U.S. and Spain agree on terms to relinquish control of Florida in what becomes the adams onis Treaty. In 1821, it becomes a U.S. territory. So it was really kind of inevitable, but these issues persisted in Ellicott's work. The four years of work, unfortunately, it was very thorough, but it all became U.S. territory in the end. Interesting. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the Andrew Ellicott Journal we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Journalist Mabel Norris-Reese is finally getting the recognition she deserves. Holly Baker has this report. Mabel Norris-Reese was the owner and editor of the Mount Dora Topic newspaper in Lake County, Florida from the 1940s until the early 1960s. She was also a civil rights activist who used her typewriter to battle the injustice she saw taking place in Florida at the time. In 1949, a white woman from Groveland claimed she was raped by four black suspects. Ernest Thomas, Walter Irvin, Sam Shepard, and Charles Greenlee. The men came to be known as the Groveland Four. Within hours of the accusations, the Ku Klux Klan burned down black homes and chased hundreds of people out of Groveland. Three of the Groveland Four were arrested, while one, Ernest Thomas, was killed by an angry mob. When Mabel Norris Reese reported on the case, little did she know that doing her job as a journalist would put her life in danger. Florida native Gary McKechnie is a writer, speaker, and founder of the Mabel Norris Reese Tribute Fund. 
He told me more about Mabel Norris Reese and the Groveland 4 case. Sheriff Willis McCall, who was a racist, sociopathic sheriff here in Lake County for 28 years, he rounds up four black guys. He actually, he rounds up three black guys. One of them, they have a thousand person posse made up of Klansmen. And they find this guy up around Gainesville and they just blow him away. So he never stands trial. He was just uh, implicated in this rape. The three others, they take to the Lake County Courthouse in Tavares. What they had was they had this cinder block room down in the basement and there was a pipe that ran overhead. They would handcuff them to pipes overhead and they'd break bottles at their feet so they couldn't rest their feet on the ground. They'd just be hanging there. Willis McCall's deputies would take turns beating the hell out of these guys, knocking their teeth out, fracturing their skulls, and just trying to beat confessions out of them. In 1951, Sheriff Willis McCall was transporting Sam Shepard and Walter Irvin from the Rayford State Prison back to the Lake County Jail when he claimed to have a flat tire. Alone with the two handcuffed prisoners, Sheriff McCall drove down a dirt road near Umatilla, Florida. He drew his pistol and shot each prisoner three times. Sam Shepard was killed instantly, and Walter Irvin survived by playing dead. The next day, Walter Irvin told FBI agents and reporter Mabel Norris Reese that the shooting was unprovoked. The more Mabel Norris Reese learned about the case of the Groveland Four, the more she began to question the account of Sheriff Willis McCall, who she once supported. Back to Mabel Norris Reese, who for a couple of years has been banging the drum. Sheriff McCall is a good guy. He's an upstanding citizen. All of a sudden, she's starting to realize his story can't be believed. There's something wrong here. Things aren't adding up. So you got to picture this. She's now going against the sheriff which brings the full force of his corrupt empire down on her, him and all his Klansmen friends. And now all of a sudden, it's just like getting really dicey for her. Through the 1950s, Mabel Norris Reese courageously and repeatedly went up against Sheriff Willis McCall and the Ku Klux Klan in the Mount Dora topic, putting her life at risk. Her house has a cross burned in, in the yard. A car drives by and they throw a bomb at her house. Then another car drives by at another point, bombs her house again. These Klansmen take this chunk of meat, they, they soak it in poison and strychnine, they throw it over the fence, murder her dog. They paint a red cross by her business. She has the good sense to say, Willis McCall is my best insurance policy because if I end up dead, people are gonna know who did it. It's gonna be the Lake County Sheriff who did it. The Ku Klux Klan eventually ran Mabel Norris Reese out of town in 1960, she moved with her family to Daytona Beach and began to write columns for the Daytona Beach News. Sheriff McCall was investigated numerous times for civil rights violations and tried for murder, but he was never convicted. Mabel Norris Reese was one of the only journalists brave enough to question and to confront Sheriff McCall and his misdeeds. In 2020, through donations from the Lake County community, sculptor Jim McNallis created a sculpted portrait of Mabel Norris Reese. The sculpture will be on rotating display in the near future. Gary McKechnie. You look at a portrait of Mabel Norris Reese and you have to ask yourself, could I do that? Would I have the courage to stand up for people who are the victims of a law enforcement officer who's gone rogue, a legal system that's been corrupted? You hope you do, but you have to look at people like Mabel and say, hey, if she could do it, I can do it because you want to aspire to something greater than yourself. For evil to exist, good people do nothing. Mabel chose to do something. That's why she's to be admired. 
Mabel Norris Reese lived in Daytona Beach until her death in 1995 at the age of 80. To learn more about the life and work of Mabel Norris Reese, go to RememberMabel.com. In 2019, Governor Ron DeSantis pardoned the Groveland Four with unanimous Executive Clemency Board approval. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for the program comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. Florida Frontiers is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.